Good morning. He is risen. He is risen. Man. Uh, some of us have grown up saying that a ton. I was actually thinking this morning while I was driving. This is what you do when you drive. Uh, and I was driving, and I was thinking about how often I've said that phrase. I thought, man, you okay, I'm 36, 37? I'm in that realm. I was born in 86. You do the math. So I'm 36, and I've probably said it uh, at least every year since I was six. So that's about 30 years. And I've actually probably said it twice, because some people repeat it like I just did, right? And so I've said it at least 60 times. And I started thinking, man, there are people in this room that like have probably said it like easily over a hundred times. You don't have to raise your hand because then we'll know you're old. But then like, you know, it's like some of you maybe 200 times, right? We don't know. Like this is a lot. And, and it got me thinking in a room this size full of people, we just span the range of some people. Like some of you might be like, wait, what did we say? Did we just say something? What are you talking about? Like, right. And so like we say these phrases and we've got these things that we say because it's Easter. We celebrate King Jesus that he is risen, right? He's risen indeed, right? It's a big deal. But then sometimes like that grows sour, stale, and then some of us maybe have never, never really said that much. It doesn't mean much to us. We all come from different places, and we all have different things. If you imagine, man, look around. Like, there are people here that, that maybe you don't know. Maybe this is your first time, and it's absolutely terrifying because you're an introvert, and now, like, maybe I'm asking people to look at you, and you're just like, gosh, I don't know what, what to do here. And we have all these things. We come here, and we've got different anxieties and stress and joys and celebrations and ambitions and desires and focuses and tragedies. We've experienced loss of loved ones. Maybe this is the first Easter without someone that you really love. We've all go those things. But somehow... God saw it fit to orchestrate that you're here right now. Here you are. Look at me. Hey, hi. You're here. God brought you here for a reason, right? That's what we believe. We believe that there's a God who has all authority in heaven and earth, King Jesus. And he says he's with us always. And he's brought you here today for a reason. But we have all these things that make us different and separate us. And, and sometimes when we say he is risen indeed, maybe that has grown stale or old to you. Maybe that's like the driving force of every part of your life. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you at all, right? But there are some things that do unify us this morning. Right? And as we say Jesus is Lord and we say he is risen indeed, we celebrate that death could not hold him, that Satan's sin and death has been defeated, that he is risen and he is king. Amen? But again, also, we need to acknowledge that, that maybe for some of us, those are just words, right? I want to talk about some things that do unify us, and we're going to come full circle back to all of this stuff because we want to talk about King Jesus. King Jesus, and we want to celebrate him. But there are some things that unify all of us. Everyone in this room is asking the same three questions of your lifetime. Over your lifetime, there's these ultimate questions. And you might be philosophical, and you might say, oh, that question stinks, I got a better one. And ultimately, it still comes back to these three questions. And how you answer these three questions kind of symbolizes the drumbeat, the cadence, how you walk in life. Even if you choose not to think about these questions, they're the cadence and heartbeat of everything you do in existence. By ignoring them, you're still answering them. These are questions like the first one, how do we get here? Look around. We've got hands, hair, some of us. We've got, there's people around. There's chairs we're sitting in. We've got, you know, dogs that wear sweaters and trees and panda bears and people who drive ridiculously. We're, we exist. Here we are, iPhone, right? Things are happening. How do we get here? That's question one. Question two is, what went wrong? And that's, like, we don't have to philosophically get into that. I mean, again, Look at your last week. Did everything go well? Is things going good? Are you pretty happy? Are things perfect? Not clearly something went wrong. If you don't think anything went wrong, consider this. 
our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine this morning are celebrating Easter very differently than us. Very different because they're surrounded by destruction, chaos, disorder, and death. And we're sitting here mostly unscathed by that, right? And so, so again, something went wrong. How did we all get here? What went wrong? Things go wrong. Third question is, what's the solution? Uh, what makes it all right? How does it get better? Right? Those are things we're asking. What makes it right? We got here somehow. There's a problem. What's the solution? And we have different cries for that. Some people would say science is the solution. Love is the solution. Kindness. Uh, some people go to addictions, uh, all sorts of things. Beer, porn, legalized drug use. That would be a great thing. Doctors, technology, marriage, more kids, less kids, screen time, uh, organic kale smoothies, military power. What if we just had better leaders? That would make things better. That would solve the problem. Better education, uh, consistently available custard for the masses, new episodes of King of the hill and free health care. Anyone? My people? Ah, oh, come on. What's the solution? Clearly those things aren't getting us there. They could put out a new season of King of the Hill this week and it really wouldn't solve any of my problems in life. These are the questions that drive us, right? And before I start stepping on all your toes, you're like, gosh, I didn't come to Easter service to think about philosophy, right? Just tell me about Jesus so I can move on. No, these are things we've got to think about. Because if we don't think about these questions, Jesus actually doesn't really mean much to us. Because if he doesn't answer those questions, then it's not good news. It's just news, just more information, just things that fly by. And from those three questions, I actually argue that once you answer those three questions, there's two other questions you ask every day. Every heartbeat of everything you do every day comes back to these two questions. Am I good enough? Can I do it my way? Can I go my own way? There's a song about that. You can go your own way. Go, go, go. Fleetwood Mac. Dang it, I was going to get it first. Who said it? I was so close. I was going to Ario Speedway. I was wrong. So who who expected to hear Fleetwood Mac quoted this morning? Great. Me neither. That just came out. That's for free. But so am, am I good enough? Can I do it my own way? And then you ask that every day. And some of us think I am good enough. So I do it my own way. And some of us think, man, I am the worthless bag of trash in this room. So I just want to know, am I good enough? Right? I can't even try to do it my own way. These are the things that spin. And so we all start answering these questions. And ultimately, those questions come back to me, to David Newton. What's most important for me? We talk about orbit a lot in our church. And I want to, I want to focus you in on that. I don't need to get the chalkboard. Just imagine, so much of our life is this orbit of things coming back to me. And I've got my life and my pension, my retirement, my job, my career, my family. My, and it's all just orbiting us. And then every now and then, like the war in Ukraine, it kind of gets close to orbit. And then we find a way to fashion it into our orbit. And everything comes around us. It's all orbiting us. And this is our life, right? You can do this motion if you want. This is the orbit of life. Huh? Huh? Okay. And this happens. It's exhausting. Look at me. It's exhausting. Am I good enough? Can I do it my way? How do we get here? What went wrong? What's the solution? The Bible has a very specific answer for these things. The Bible deals with it very honestly and in a much truer light. We're going to talk about the gospel this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, I would encourage you to grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardbacked one in the seats in front of you. Uh, you can use a device if you want, if uh, you can handle that. Um, but we're going to be in Luke 23 and John 19 eventually. And then we're also going to be in Luke 24 and John 20 as well. So you can be in those places if you want. Um, we're going to talk about the gospel this morning. We're going to start Genesis 1.1. Uh, you can turn there. It's going to be on the screen. But I'm going to pray and then we're going to get rolling. 
God, I pray that you would guide us by the power of your spirit, that you would speak to us as, as we start unearthing and asking these deep questions as we make sense of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. May your spirit guide us and give us knowledge. May your word bear its weight on us and speak truth to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and dark, and the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, hovered over the waters, right? That's what Genesis 1.1 and 2 says. It was formless and void. The earth was nothing, and God, he created it. And if you read the story through Genesis 1, God speaks how many times? Ten. He speaks ten times, right? And seven times he says, it is good. One of them he says, it's very good, after he creates humans. He says, it's very good. So fascinating. God says he created everything and his spirit is hovering over the world. There's disorder and chaos. There's darkness and waters and tension. The Hebrew phrase is tovu vavohu. It's a really interesting phrase. And it means the world is just messed up. The spirit of God comes hovering amongst it. Doesn't affect him because he's above it. And then he brings order to the chaos. He speaks authoritatively and creation happens. And he says it's good. God creates it and it's good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Then Genesis 2 comes, it's kind of a, a similar story, it tells a different flavor of the same story, and it ends up telling us about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God basically says, hey, don't go your own way, right? Okay, Fleetwood Mac, you, you can't go your own way, actually, right? And that's not what that song's about anyway, but you can't go your own way, follow me, because I created you, and it's very good, and there's an objective source for goodness. If you're into philosophy, there is an objective source for beauty. That's why some art stinks. There's an objective source for love. That's how you know that you're not loved. There's an objective source for goodness. That's how you know things are bad, right? Hot is always hot, Cold is always cold. You don't have hot ice and you don't have cold fire. We have objective realities, uniformity of creation. And God says, I created that. There's a pattern for how things exist. And he says, it's good. But don't do it your own way. And then as the story goes, we rebel. The serpent comes and it says to the woman, did God say you can't eat from that tree? Genesis 3, 4, and 5. You won't die. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Knowing good from evil. This is where rebellion inserts. We come in and we say, wait a minute, I want my own orbit. I want to be like God. I want to know good from evil for myself. I decide. I can go my own way. I can create the orbit. It can be about me. It can be about David Newton. Not about God. It can be about David. And I encourage you this morning, think about that. Man, what parts of your life is it ultimately about you? Is it even possible for us to do selfless acts or does everything ultimately turn back to some orbit, some crafting, some manipulative cycle that we get in our lives to make everything about us? This isn't a message to make you feel insecure and awful about yourself. There's truth and hope, but it's worth being honest with ourselves saying, wait a minute, we rebelled. We want to be like God. We decide good from evil. Genesis 6, 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of their heart was on evil continually. Nah, it's a heart issue. It's not just about doing the bad things. Don't do the bad stuff. No, it's a heart posture now. There's something in our hearts that says, no, I want to rebel. I want to do it my way. It's all about me. It's a heart issue. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved into his heart. Don't let that word regretted throw you off. In the Hebrew, the, the idea is that God is emotional. Our hearts are evil and God emotionally is grieved by it because he wants a right relationship with us. He loves us. And we continually do things that separate us from him. 
So God chooses a family out of that. You've probably heard of the story of Abraham and then uh, Isaac and Jacob and Israel, right? And if you've been a part of our church, we've been reading through the whole Bible this year. And if you've never read the Bible, I encourage you to read it. We've got all these resources to help you read it because it's one unified story that points to King Jesus. Today's the climax. This is what we're talking about. All of history comes to this moment. Christ is risen, right? And as we've been reading that, we see that God has chosen this family and they're going to they're gonna bring his blessing to all people. All people are going to see it, but they also rebel. This whole family can't do it. They rebel. They end up in captivity, right? And you might have heard this story, right, of Moses, and he comes, and then there's all these plagues to get these people out of the captivity of Egypt. Uh, Name some of the plagues. Who knows a plague? Frogs. Frogs. What else? Blood. Gnats. Death, right? There's all sorts of these plagues. There's ten of them. Interestingly enough, God speaks ten times. Then he dismantles creation ten times, right? Get that drilled in your brain. It's interesting. All these plagues happen. One of the plagues, one of the things God did was he was going to bring this angel of death. was going to pass over, right? And then and the firstborn was going to be killed. But if the Hebrews or Egyptians, assumably, if they would have taken a lamb and killed it and taken its blood and painted it on their doorpost, this is called what? Passover, right? You Jewish people, you celebrate this, right? It's called Passover. And you've heard this story. They paint the lamb's blood. It sounds really gruesome. Like, man, did they have to paint it afterwards? Because now they got lamb's blood forever in the door. But they paint the blood on there, right? And then the angel passes over. And then they continue to celebrate this to remember. This is how God rescued us. He passed over. But then even after this Passover lamb, we see this consistent sin, rebellion, death. We have judges, kings, prophets, all in the Old Testament. We also see continual destruction, death, rebellion, suffering. Then Isaiah comes along. Isaiah was a, was a prophet, and he, he writes all these things. Uh, he, he writes about how things are, how things were, and how things are going to be. He writes a lot of messianic prophecies. That's a 20-cent word, and you can use it parties to sound intelligent. Messianic prophecies are things that prophesy about who King Jesus is, about the Messiah. What went wrong? Well, we rebelled. We messed it all up. What's the solution? Oh, one day a Messiah is going to come make it right. This is what he's talking about. Read this, Isaiah 53, talking about this Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This tells him a Messiah who will be broken, who will be crushed, Because of God, God chooses this, and this Messiah will bear our iniquities, our rebellion. This was written six or seven hundred years before Jesus came. And then about six hundred-ish years later, Jesus comes. You've heard the story, right? Virgin Mary, she's pregnant, right? And then her husband's like, ugh, ugh, that's controversial, better divorce her. And then an angel appears to Joseph, and he says, do not divorce her. This baby that she has is from the Holy Spirit. You shall give him the name... Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is Yeshua, Joshua. In Hebrew, it means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves will save his people from their sins. You have this this thing that Isaiah wrote about, this suffering servant, this Messiah. He's going to come and all the iniquities are going to come on him. And then now Jesus comes and says, wait, this is the Messiah. You shall call him Jesus. Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sin. Later on uh, in John 1, 29, Jesus is, is walking, and as he's coming, his cousin, John the Baptist, sees him. And John the Baptist, as soon as he sees him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. You shall call him Yeshua, Jesus. Yahweh saves. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will save his people from the sin. He takes on the sin of the world. I don't know, is this Messiah? Is this his Passover lamb? Is that what John's calling him the lamb? Hey, you, you got to die and your blood's got to be splattered all over the doorpost so that, so that people can be forgiven? By his wounds we are healed. John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away our sin. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Then Matthew 26, when Jesus is doing the Lord's Supper, he's celebrating the Passover, right, with his disciples. This is where we get communion. If you ever wonder, like, why, why do people put the bread and cracker in their mouth, and, and why do they put the drink or the wine or the grape juice or whatever, depending on how you are in different traditions, this is where Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples. He says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. You shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from her sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes on the sin of the world. Drink of it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. By his wounds, we are healed. Now you start seeing this connection all through scripture. And then Jesus is arrested. He's brutally beaten. He's flogged. He's hung on the cross. You guys have seen that image. You understand that? You've seen the passion. You understand the brutality of it. He goes through all of this pain and suffering. In Luke 23, when they came to the place called the skull, in Aramaic, that's called Golgotha. You know what it's called? Uh, just to solve the mystery you might all have. Do you know what it's called in Latin? Calva, which means bald head for skull. It's the word Calvary. You know what the word is in, uh, in Greek? I can't think of it off the top of my head. Sorry, it doesn't matter. But, uh, oh, cranion, which is where we get the word cranium. So it comes to place skull. So now you know, Golgotha, Calvary, skull, cranium, all there. When they come to the place of the skull where they crucified him, with one criminal on the right side and one on his left, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. The Passover lamb can say, Father, forgive them, because he bears the sin of the world. By his wounds were healed. And they casted lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. And the rulers scoffed at him. These are the rulers, the religious leaders of the day, the ones who sent him to be crucified. They scoffed. And what do they say? The rulers scoffed, and they said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the Son of God, his chosen one. Then the soldiers also mocked him. These are the Romans, the, 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 the leaders of the day. So you've got Rome and the religious leaders. The religious leaders, oh yeah, if he's really Jesus, if he's really the Messiah, oh, save yourself, right? Come on, come right down there. You save yourself if you're really Jesus. And then there were the Roman soldiers. They say the same thing. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Here's the irony. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand that if he saves himself, he has no shot at saving them. If Jesus saved himself, he can't be your savior. Because by his wounds we're healed. Because behold the Lamb of God who takes on the sin of the world. You shall give his name to be Jesus. Yahweh saves. Because he will save his people from their sin. Drink the blood of the new covenant. My blood of the new covenant. For I take on the sins of the world. Save yourself. He can't save himself. If he saves himself, he can't save anyone else. Because by his wounds we're healed.
So Jesus hung on that cross and he died. And as he died, John 19, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, he said to fulfill scripture, I thirst and a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it up to his mouth. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus knows it's finished and he says it's finished. What's finished? You shall give his name to be Jesus for he will save their people from their sins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the blood of the covenant, my blood which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus stayed on the cross so that he could save us all. And then he's able to say, it is finished. How do we get here? God created everything. We can discuss all sorts of science and and dating and all that. There's an objective source. God created it. What went wrong? We went wrong. We chose to do it apart from the objective source, apart from what God wanted. This is why we're always debating justice, morality, what is love. We're going back and forth. We don't have a source. God says, I'm the source. I created all. Look to me. That's what went wrong as we rebelled. What's the solution? Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it is finished. The great offense of this message is that he hung there to save you. And the offense is that if he hung there to save you, then that must mean that you need saving. That must mean that you have transgressions, iniquity, sin. Put whatever religious word you want. Junk. You've got rebellion. You've got things that go against God. You do it your own way. You've got selfish orbits. But he didn't save himself. He died to save you. And then he says, it is finished. Am I good enough? Can I do it my way? No, you're not good enough. Your way leads to death, sin, and rebellion. We're all going to die. We're all going to end. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him won't perish, but they'll have everlasting life. God wants you to have a right relationship with him. In order to do that, you have to understand the great offense of your sin. You have to understand that Jesus hung there for you. Not just because he Gucci Gucci loved you and he just really needed to die. Specifically because we have things that separate us from God. We have sin. We have grossness. We have pain. And he died for that. He didn't save himself. He saved you. That through our faith in him, we could be saved. Our way leads to destruction, death, chaos. Our sin is what he was punished for. By his wounds, we are healed. Nathan's going to come play a song. And as he plays this song, I would encourage you to take some time to reflect on that. Do you believe that it is finished? Or is there something in your life that you don't really see King Jesus as declaring it is finished? Maybe there's some relationship in your life. Maybe there's, there's some struggle at school. Maybe there's some problem at work. Maybe there's some, some death or some sickness or some junk going on that just really wrecks your life. And you say, how can you say it's finished, Jesus? Because it's not. Look around. But yet he's not dead. Jesus is alive. And so when he says it is finished, he must see the world differently than I do. He must be looking at something bigger than I am because I wasn't there at the beginning. In fact, I'm only going to be here a little bit and then I'm dead. But the God who sees all things who died for us, he says, it is finished. What do you not believe in your life is not finished? 
In what ways do you need to look to Jesus? Nathan's going to sing. Take some time to sit there and reflect as he sings this song. Think about this song. Makes all things new, all things new. Come lost and abandoned, come blown by the wind. He'll bring you back home again, home again. So rise up, boy, you sleep away. For the light of the dawn is upon you. Rise up, for you sleep awake. He makes all things new, all things new. Come frozen with shame, come burn with guilt. My Jesus, He loves you still, loves you still. So rise up, boy, sleep away. For the light of the dawn is upon you. Rise up, boy, sleep away. He makes all things new. He makes all things new. The world was good, the world is fallen, the world will be redeemed. The world was good, the world is fallen, the world will be redeemed. The world was good, the world is fallen, the world will be redeemed. So hold on to the promise, the stories are true, that Jesus makes all things new. The dawn is upon you, rise up or you sleep awake, for the light of the dawn is upon you. Rise up or you sleep awake, he makes all things new. Rise up for you sleep awake, for the light of the dawn is upon you. Rise up for you sleep awake, he makes all things new. He makes all things new. He makes all things new. All things new. He makes all things gospel is the story of how God sent his son to us. 
to live with us, to teach us, but to be very different than us. The gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. Right? The gospel is the good news of how Christ came down to live a sinless life, arguably a victorious life. But unfortunately, he was hated by the very people that should have loved him first. So what did they do? They took him. They punished. They tortured him. And hang him on a tree. The very people that should have loved him killed him. And he hung up there and he bled and he died. Arguably, this is a very silly reason to come together and celebrate. Why would we do that? Why would we come together and celebrate someone who died many centuries ago? Some random person, seemingly. Why would we come sing happy songs and regurgitate stuff that this guy said several centuries ago? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. The same person that we quote, the same person that taught us, the same person that lived differently than us, the same person that was tortured by the people that should have loved him gave us a clue. Not only through his teaching, but in his last breaths. It is finished. It is finished. His mission on earth was finished. And he didn't mean that, ah, no more pain. I can finally die. It's done. That's not what he was referring to. He wasn't referring to the end of pain. He wasn't saying, ah, the pain has finally been able to stop. He's saying his mission is finished. It's complete. There's nothing left to do. Because he knew what his death meant. He knew his death was not permanent. He knew he was going to come back. Because Jesus is alive. And that's what makes the news good. Other than that, it's just news. The fact that he resurrected, the fact that he is alive is what makes the news good. And what does he do with that? What does it mean that he's come back from the dead? What does that mean? It means he's conquered death. It means he is in charge of it. And he teaches this, this, let's go to Revelation 1, verses 17 through 18 real quick. This is Jesus kind of teaching us all this. He goes, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Let's talk about that just for a second, because this is something that everyone can relate to. Um, not that you, you know, have like the keys to the gates of hell or anything like that, but you can relate to this concept. Has anyone here ever bought a house or a car or a riding mower? I mean, anything like that? Has anyone ever bought something like that? Of course. I mean, somebody can raise their hand, right, and say, yes, I can relate to that concept, right? So you go to the, you're trying to buy a house or whatever, right? There's like 
a stack of paperwork like that, right? It takes like two hours to sign everything. It seems like this long, tedious process that seems meaningless, let's be honest. You're going all the way through it, but at some point, at the end of that huge stack of papers, the funds have been transferred. The check is cleared. And the person across the table hands you a set of keys. Ownership has been transferred. It is no longer owned by that person. It is now owned by you. Once I have the keys, I have authority. I can do whatever I want to this. I own the keys to a truck and a van sitting out there. I can go out there and beat it with a hammer if I want, and no one's going to stop me except for maybe my wife. Right? I have authority. I can do whatever I want with that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The ownership has been transferred. It belongs to him. And what does he do with that authority? Does he take it and hoard it down upon all the people that made him suffer and die and say, too bad? No, that's actually not what he does. He does the exact opposite. And he takes all that authority over death and Hades and offers it to all of us. He says, all you got to do is trust me. All you got to do is put your faith in me. All you have to do is believe in me. Right? John 3, 16. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. That's a long time. (laughs) Right? Rather than our little blip of existence of this physical form that we see right now is a blip compared to eternal life. And Jesus is in a unique position. Both 100% God and divine and 100% human. And it is only him, only through him can that bridge be made. It is only Christ that we can get to Father. And he makes that connection for us. So all we got to do is believe and put our trust in him. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. And we usually reference these scripture whenever we're talking about baptism. But it's talking about dying with Christ. And being made new with him. And it can only be done through him. Let's read this. Romans 6 verses 3 through, uh, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We die to the old. We usually uh, use this scripture also to reference why we do full submission baptism. Because it's supposed to resemble grave and death. All the way down. All the way back up. Dead alive in him, right? Keep going. We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in of life. It's a new life. The old is gone. Christ has given us new life, an eternal life. That's what he offers us through his authority. He says, I can grant this to you. You just got to believe, right? For, uh, Peter talks about this a little bit too. In 1 Peter 1, 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's hone in on this idea of a living hope just for a second. Because we have a tendency to put hope in things that we can see, hope in things that we can control. Uh, a lot of people uh, don't realize it. They say, ah, oh, I don't do that. But let's be honest, probably 95% of us here put hope in money, right? 
You go to your job every day, you get a paycheck, and that's how I know I can pay for my house, car, my food, all that kind of stuff, right? You put your hope in money. It's like, that's guaranteed. I'm going to, I know that that can sustain me. I know that that can save me from being hungry, whatever you want to include there. But one bad stock market day, it's gone. It's gone. You might put hope in family. It's like, I don't need money. I got my family. They'll protect me. They'll be with me. I don't know if you know this, but your family's human. And through their fallacy, they are going to disappoint you. Other people maybe even put your hope in yourself. I know I have a tendency to do that a lot. Put hope in myself. The only person I can trust is me. I know, I, I know it'll get done because I'm the one that's actually going to do it. Me, myself, and I, right? I can't count on anybody else. Well, then I, above anyone else, should know how bad I am at things, <laughs> Right? You know your own limitations, so you know from the get-go that's a horrible argument of where your hope is. Horrible argument. Peter says we need to be in a living hope. All those other things are going to fade away like a flower without water. They're all going to fade away, but a living hope is not perishable. It's not perishable. It'll never die. It'll never go away. And that's what we get in Jesus because he pushes us to an eternal hope. It'll always be there. Peter says that we are to be reborn in this hope. Paul says that we are to be dead in Christ and rise again. The old is gone. We now have the new. It's the same message that we need to realize that it is only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be saved. We have symbols. We have different ways of teaching it, different ways of saying it, but it all boils down to that one thing. The only shot we have is to believe in the resurrection. That's what we have. And Jesus says, just believe and the eternal life is yours. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then here's where it gets fun. Peter quotes Isaiah. By his wounds, you have been healed. Not by your wallet, not by your family, not by yourself. By his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is our only shot. We will forever lean towards selfishness and idols and trying to make the decisions our own. Like, this is good, this is bad, and only I can make this decision. We're, we're always going to lean that way. We're always going to be this. God gave the Israelites like over 600 laws. Is it because he was picky? Sort of. But for a reason. He was trying to say, guys, this is what it's going to take to be holy. I give you the law so you know sin, so you know what it takes, so you know brokenness. I give you Jesus to let you know you can't do it. Only he can. It is only by his wounds we are healed. It is only through him we can get to the Father. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has 
come. And Jesus was supposed to be this triumphal warrior king to the Jews whenever he came. And because they, he didn't fit in this little box that they thought he was going to be, he didn't earn their love. Instead, he came as a slaughtered lamb of peace. And I'd make the argument that that's how he needs to earn our love. For what he did for us. He saved us. And he showed us a way to a living, living hope. And a new creation. Because one day this is all going to be gone. And we only have him as our hope. In Revelation 21, we talk about this new hope. This is what I want to talk about for just a second here. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. This is John speaking. Then I say, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. I want to stop right there for a second. This is a pretty interesting part of this. Um, most of the time, the imagery of this idea of like the sea is no more, you would think like, so all the water is going to be gone? That sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> but what it's trying to make the point of here, or what John's trying to make the point through this illustration, the sea is no more. The sea is the only thing that separates the land. And he's trying to make the point that when the sea is no more, there is no separation. There is no differences. Everyone's the same. Nothing separates us, not only from each other, but from God. There is none of that anymore. And that's the, the imagery he's trying to make sure we understand here. So the sea is no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out from, from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. I don't know if anyone has noticed all these flowers up here. I'm very pretty. Someone spent a lot of time decorating the stage and getting all these made. And there's a reason for that, right? Not only does it look pretty, but there's a message here. What do we think this represents? All the flowers, everything like that, right? When you think flowers and you think garden, what's the first thing you think of? Spring, right? What's the other first thing you think of? <laughs> Eden, right? We think of the Garden of Eden. The last time we saw ourselves actually dwelling with God. The last time. And what did we do? We ruined it. We stepped out of the garden. We said, I don't need this. I'm going to make the decision myself. And we tore ourselves away from God's presence. And that was in Eden. And what we're seeing here as a hope is God reestablishing this Eden, reestablishing a dwelling place with us. No more separation. He's going to come back. And he's not just going to come back as this hierarchy of king. No, he's going to come back and be with us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have been passed away. We're dead and now we're alive. Because Jesus died. And now he's alive. 
And he welcomes us into that eternal life, into this hope, into a new world where there's no separation among us. There's no separation between us and God. There is no pain. There is no crying. There is no death. And this is our hope. This is what we hope for. And none of this would have been possible if Jesus would have saved himself because he chose to save us. There'll be no more car accidents, no more random babies dying, nothing like that. Be a whole new world. Not to get all doom and gloom, but, and David kind of started this, and I want, I want to finish with this. In case you didn't know this, someday you're going to die. Someday your body is just going to stop functioning. Uh, modern medicine can probably keep you going for a while, but eventually the body's just going to stop working. This is literally a body of death. And like I said, you can try to prolong life. You can try to eat your vegetables, do, you know, Pilates or whatever your choice is there. You can try, but you're going to die. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you put your hope? If you can't stop death, the only thing that is for sure is death and then whatever comes after. Where do you hope? Because I, I would reckon that there are several people that might say, I hope in the fact that I'm a good person and God will save me because I'm a good person. Even in just basic deductive reasoning, that's a shaky argument. Because what, what are you using to define good? What, what, what is your uh, element of research there? Like, what are you comparing it to? Like, you're just comparing it to your next door neighbor? Like, you know what? I'm, I'm a slightly better father than he is. Or I'm a slightly better mother than she is. My kids don't, you know, scream during church. So, you know, I've got this. We're good. I didn't show up on the six o'clock news. At least I'm not that person. Ever use language like that? At least I'm not that person. I'm not as bad as X, Y, Z. So you're just banking on the fact that maybe you're good enough? Step back and just think for a second. Because what Jesus is offering is assurance. He's offering a way to say, if you believe, it's for sure. Eternal life is for sure. So we'll ask again this morning, where are you putting your hope? Are you putting your hope in yourself? Or you're putting your hope in something that is for sure? Ephesians 2 actually teaches us that we are all dead in our trespasses. In other words, there's nothing you can do that will be good enough to save yourself. Because you are dead in your trespass. What's the only way to not be dead in our trespass? Faith in Jesus. It is only his life that will bring us life. Maybe you're questioning it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, uh, you know, I've, I've always been kind of shut off to these kind of things. I've always had a wall up to these kind of things. And right now you're just questioning it. I'm not, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet, but I'm questioning it. 
Let me make this point. God is wooing you. If, if you have even the slightest little bit of question in you, if there's anything that you've heard this morning that is even slightly making you think, huh, God is wooing you. God is trying to speak into your spirit right now. And he's asking you to make a decision. He is asking you to seek the assurance of the faith in his son, the only shot we have. And just like Peter said after Pentecost in Acts 2, how we, what, what do we do about that? We repent, meaning we change the way we think. We change, we turn to think about something else. Change the way we're thinking about, right? We repent, we be baptized, and we receive the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. So I want to invite you as we continue through this final, uh, these final songs and this final response time, everything like that, if, if there's even a slight questioning, a slight inclination, I, I want you to just... just just think for a second. Maybe God is trying to speak to me. And maybe he is wanting me to make a decision this morning. Even if that decision is more conversation. Even if that's what it is. just want to read again because we can never say it enough. Peter repeated it. Isaiah said it first. It is only by his wounds that we can be healed. It is only through him and his authority that he has over death that we can truly have eternal life in him. Response time isn't over. We are Easter people. If you believe in Jesus, then we're Easter people. We live every day as if it is finished. What about the stuff that's not finished? What about all this junk going on? So Jesus says, go therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always. And the first thing he said was, I have all authority in heaven and earth. And so for the things that seem unfinished, we remember, no, Jesus says it is finished. And so maybe you're here this morning and, and there's still a need to respond. Maybe you're not an Easter person. <laughs> maybe you don't know Jesus. I would encourage you as, as we hang out afterwards, we go on stairs, drink coffee, and we just meander before we all go out and do the Easter stuff that we do every time. You guys have holiday service. Before you do that, if God's speaking to you, if you're questioning, if you're, man, I don't know. I don't know if I am an Easter person. I don't know if I know Jesus. Talk to us. God brought you here for a reason. That's why we started this. We all have different ways we got here, but God brought us here for a reason. You can be seated as we close the service. There's a couple things uh, that we want to do. Uh, we, uh, we normally, uh, we, we pray over our offering. If that's uh, strange to you, we're going to do that here in a minute. Uh, we believe that God generously gave us all things. He gave us his life. He gave us the world. He constantly gives us things. And so we give back, right? We give tithes and offerings and, and we give those things and we pray over those. As a church, we want to be responsible with the money that comes in and say, how do we use those to see his kingdom come and his will be done? And so if you want, you can join us in this posture. I'm going to hold out my hands and I'm just going to pray over the gifts that God gives. Father, we pray right now for the tithes and offerings, the things that, that are given. We, we want to trust you with those things. The ways that we give of our time, our money, our energy, they're all yours, God. It's your time. It's your money. It's your energy. Thank you that it is finished. May we believe in that. Show us how to seek 
you and your kingdom. See your kingdom come and your will be done. Earth is as in heaven. Amen. Um, one, uh, one quick announcement. Uh, next week, if you uh, come here, you'll notice that we're not doing services normal. Several churches in the area celebrate Mission JC one Sunday a year. We all go out and we serve the community. But uh, there's also things to be doing here at the church. We do uh, some things downstairs, uh, some activities. So if you do show up, uh, if this is your first time, you're like, man, I want to come back next week. I, I don't know what's going on. Like maybe God wants me to be in church. I'm trying to figure that out. Come next week. We'll serve because Jesus taught us to serve other people. Jesus gave us two commandments. He said, these are the most important things in the world. You want to know what they are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. One commandment. He actually combined it together. So you, you love God by loving your neighbor. And you love your neighbor by loving God. So we're going to be doing that next week together. We're going to be serving to show other people love. So we encourage you to come. If you come expecting this service, uh, you're going to miss it. Because we're going to have a service uh, Sunday evening next week starting at 5... 5.30. Thank you, Carrie. Carrie remembers times. I don't. But next week at 5.30, we're going to have an evening service to celebrate Mission JC, talk about what we did, and to hear a little bit of First Samuel as we've been working through the Bible. So uh, if you're new here, I just feel encouraged to let you know, hey, stick around. Go downstairs, grab some coffee. If you don't drink coffee, you can hold an empty cup. That's fine, too. It'll just assimilate. It'll all work out. But uh, hang out. Let's talk. Let's get to know you. God brought you here for a reason. Nothing's accidental, man. Everyone whose story has some story of transformation, and they're like, and then I made this decision and it changed my life. Every story involves other people because our willpower stinks. Our forgetter works really good. We break things. But God, if he loves you, what if he brought you here to start connecting you with people, with his Easter people, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as is in heaven. A kingdom involves people. You're here for a reason. So hang out. Let's talk. If you want to stand, I'm going to close the service and pray. I want us to pray together. I'm going to pray and then we can go out and continue to see his kingdom come and his will be done. To declare it is finished in all areas of our life because Jesus is risen. The tomb's empty. We serve a savior that is alive. Right. Not someone who's dead. Not someone who we're hoping makes things better. He's alive. And he's with us always. He has all authority. God, thank you for this day. We, we celebrate the gospel every week, especially today. We remember. And as we've got family gathered and all these other celebrations that happen, Father, I pray that your spirit would move in us to declare your kingdom come, your will be done, to live as your new humanity, your new creation. In Jesus' name, God, thank you for your great love for us. May we continue to, to serve others, to love you, to love others. And God, I pray especially that you would instill in our hearts that it is finished in Christ. All glory be to Christ. Thank you for your great love for us, Father. May we go from this place and live as your people, having faith in you, looking forward to the eternal life we have in you through our faith. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the empty tomb. Amen. It is finished.